0: My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames Cast. And on today's episode, I'll be taking a look at the recent 3D Blu-ray re-release of James Cameron's Avatar, a look at David Cronenberg's latest film, Cosmopolis, and also a look at Ryan Johnson's new science fiction time traveller opus, Looper. Before I begin, I just want to i uh, tell you a few things. The one is that the blog, I have now actually put up all the pages. Um, for if you have tried to click on any of those tabs, most of them go absolutely nowhere and now I've actually got some content on all of them. The Show Archives page, um, it's not complete yet but I'm updating it on an almost daily basis so it won't take too long before everything's up there. Um, just a reminder as well to go onto the exclusives page if you want more because at the moment I'm currently doing a James Bond retrospective. Um, I've just posted up an episode on the man with the golden gun and the spy who loved me will be following very shortly Um, on the productions tab as well. I've put some um, stills up from the short film I made a couple of weeks ago or three weeks ago. Now, actually, just some of the kind of the crew working on the film and things like that. And I'll be doing a lot more on that soon. I'm going to record an episode about my experiences doing that and also kind of keep a diary of kind of how the editing process is going and things like that. Uh, number two as well, I'm probably going to do the criterion roundup. I was going to do um, August and then September's, but what I've decided to do is do another Omnibus episode of August and September. It'd be a little bit easier for me to manage, might make for quite a epic length show, but um, I think it would probably be easier uh, for me personally to do that and sort of get it all out there in one episode so I'm just waiting for one more blu-ray to come through from September's releases and as soon as that has come through I will uh, get that episode prepared and out there on the feed um new mail actually from someone asking me if this is going to just become a review show no it certainly isn't it's just a little bit of a backlog of things that I wanted to do um, in October, just kind of like we, we sort of get up to date with these criterions again, and I want to sort of get onto the habit of releasing more shows. But there will be um, some more theme-based stuff coming out in November, hopefully as well. Uh, there will be something of a glut of shows in December, so there's plenty in the works. I just I am very keen, obviously, to keep up the momentum and keep something coming out on the feed as regular as possible. So without any further ado, I am going to get on with taking a look at Ryan Johnson's new film, Looper. I am one of many specialized assassins called Loopers. We eliminate people from the future. Time travel has not yet been invented, but 30 years from now, it will have been. So when criminal organizations in the future need someone gone, they zap them back to me, and I do the necessaries never let your target escape even if your target is you he's on the run Pound the pavement every second that passes is bad i'm gonna fix this i'm gonna find him. i'm gonna kill him you're gonna kill this guy your own self. most of my life kill this man i get it back how do I find you? Do you know what's gonna happen? You've done all this already? I know that you're still gonna kill him. Oh, have you heard of the Rainmaker? New boss in the future. Mass executions. The reign of terror. He lives here, now. And I'm gonna stop him. None of this concerns me. This is gonna happen to you, it happen to you It st- happens to you. It doesn't have to happen to me. He's gonna take everything you've got! And everything i got! Ask yourself, who would I sacrifice for what's mine? We both know how this has to go down. I can't let you walk away alive. This is my life now. You had yours already. 2012 has been a fairly so-so year for Hollywood. God knows I am sick of hearing about people moaning about the remakes and the sequels that are coming out. It has gotten to the point of saturation for me and I I've, i think it's really been a year in that I've sort of decided that I can no longer really kind of participate in the, those types of debates. It's just absolutely boring rhetorical nonsense but... I think it's fair to say that when we look back at 12 2012 it we won't say it was a vintage year by any stretch of the imagination and yeah there's been some films that i've enjoyed that have kind of veered away from the temple releases such as the avengers and the dark knight chronicle was a welcome take on the found footage genre it was also kind of kind of a superhero hybrid type of a film the grey which was a criminally marketed here in the uk they made it out to be this kind of like liam neeson Fighting packs of wolves, kind of action fest, and instead it was actually kind of more of a darker exploration of grief that was both, I thought, kind of bold and a lot more kind of going on than the uh, the rather crappy advertising suggested. And I, I kind of think what I appreciated for both of these films was they weren't mega budget, kind of ridiculous scale films. They were both made on relatively low budgets, and I think were infinitely more rewardable than much of the massive budgeted films that have come out this year. Now, Looper is a science fiction film that was made on a budget resembling something approaching a sane amount, about 30 million dollars or roughly seven times less than what the Avengers cost, and yet I still think it manages to be about three times more original than Josh Whedon's enjoyable yet entirely predictable opus. It joins films such as The Adjustment Bureau, Dread 3D, Moon and Source Code and Sunshine that deliver solid science fiction concepts and believable well-established and realised worlds for relatively small costs. To me, they are infinitely more rewarding than those expensive and ultimately less fulfilling larger-budget cousins. Yet I also urge caution when praising these films. The tendency is to become a little hyperbolic with the adulation. I enjoyed Moon, for example, but the clamour over Sam Rockwell's performance is one of the best in recent years reeks of overreaction. Yes it is good, but award-worthy, I'm not so sure. Looper is a film that I've been looking forward to for some time. I had to remind myself going into it, not to get too high with my expectations for it. And after the final credits began to roll, I was sure of one thing. Some would say this film was a masterpiece. The question is, would this actually be justified? Now, I've enjoyed both of Ryan Johnson's previous films, Brick and The Brothers Bloom. Both certainly worked incredibly well for me, and his appearances on Slash Filmcast, though not as hysterical as the host would have you believe, with their slightly over-the-top laughing, are always entertaining, and he does come across as someone who is very genial, crucially the type of person who you want to be making films in Hollywood, i.e. not a complete arsehole. Johnson is fast becoming an auteur for the modern age, he typically writes and directs his own work, and, dare I say, feels like an original voice. I would be quite surprised were he to be plugged into some soulless franchise, and I don't very much think his number is on speed dial for studio executives looking to bring some last-minute shepherd in to move some soulless, dreary work through the system. Looper is further proof of just how much we need talents like Johnson. The story, although drawing from all manner of sources, is packaged in such a way it feels like a very original film. 30 years in the future, time travel has been invented and quickly declared illegal. However, criminal gangs have found a use for it, the disposal of other criminals. The process is simple, you get the person you want killed sent back to the past, where a hitman, known as a looper, is waiting to kill and dispose of him. Loopers are paid in silver attached to their victim, however each looper will eventually get a payoff where the silver is replaced with gold. In these circumstances, however, the victim has a unique relationship with the looper. It is a future version of their self. The idea being that after they have retired a looper will live the high life for 30 years and then be killed off in the future to ensure their criminal deeds cannot be used against the people asking their past selves to do the killing. It kind of makes sense if you don't think about it too much so enter Joe played by Joseph Gordon Levitt. In the past he does his job until one day hey presto his future self arrives played by Bruce Willis only future Joe isn't going out that easily. He has a reason to live and a death list of possibly three children who may become a future gang lord. who he believes killing in the past will help save his future love from being murdered. All we know about this future ganglord is that he seems to have taken over the running of criminal gangs virtually unopposed. Why? Well, it might have something to do with a genetic mutation giving people some telekinetic abilities. By not killing his future self, Joe has now fallen foul of the gang that employs him. His best chance of righting this wrong is to find the children on the death list and intercepts his future self from killing them. So Joe ends up on a farm with a young boy and Sarah, played by Emily Blunt. The young boy is on the death list. He knows old Joe is coming, so it's a case of waiting for the inevitable. And it's not himself he has to contend with. He's got gangsters after him, as well as the possibility the child he's protecting may be the future devil incarnate. Confused? Well, possibly, but trust me, it's all explained in far better detail in the film. Now, the first easy comparison to make is that this is a kind of 12 monkeys meets Terminator, and like most kinds of movie mashup comparisons, you could go on and on. Time people always has people clamouring for paradox plot holes, and you know what? Time travel doesn't exist, it's make-believe, it's not real, so stop applying normal logic to it. There will always be contradictions in how time travel is used, What matters to me more is other broader themes of the film explored. We all know that a simple fact of our life is death. On the one hand, loopers actually exist forever. They are part of a continual cycle of life and death repeating itself. However, their lives have a clear end date set. They know 30 years after retirement they are going to die. As Joe states, forward planning is not really one of their strong points. Although they amass a small fortune doing what they do, we later see that a looper's retirement is a pretty dire existent all working towards an inveritable, brutal conclusion. So, predetermination is a sci-fi stable, from Logan's run to Never Let Me Go, it is a subject that fascinates us. What I enjoyed here was the notion of living it up over the next 30 years. The superficiality of all this was made all too apparent. A looper's life, more or less, is an endless cycle of chasing an apparent goal that in reality goes nowhere other than death. The film plays into one of those late-night debates we have all had. Would, if we go back and kill the likes of Hitler or Stalin's, what difference would it make? Is it even ethical? Would it make the future even worse? Johnson seems interested in these types of questions, yet I think he actually goes even further with Looper by introducing the concept of nature versus nurture. It's almost quite a positive message. If if we treat people well and bring them up in a loving environment, the chances are they will go on to be a better person. Some might say that's slightly naive. I'm sure there's been murderers and rapists who had perfectly loving families. However, in Looper, I feel that Johnson was moving beyond the kind of typical science fiction time travel questions and propositions filmmakers often put and going to something a lot more humanitarian in nature. Now, now, whereas films like The Dark Knight Rises seem to throw a massive possible subtext at us, some seemingly contradictory and even perhaps politically dubious, Johnson keeps the weighty of debates and interpretations under the surface, and it's only until after the credits have rolled that they really began to kind of sink in and was one of the reasons why I found myself kind of a few days later, really appreciating Looper a lot more. Johnson's directorial style has, to me, been one of the key factors in my enjoyment of Brick and the Brothers Bloom, and for any of you Breaking Bad fans out there, he also directed a rather brilliant episode of that too. In Looper, his style is even more nuanced, and clearly you can see his confidence as a filmmaker growing even more. There is an assuredness about his way his camera moves around a scene, in particular during the way he films many of the action moments, the apparent chaos on screen is choreographed and shot to perfection. It is so apparent that he knows exactly what he wants, and edits in a symphonic fashion that records similar moments in The Matrix. Yet despite the film's trailer moments, it is also incredibly subtle too, the moment another looper admits that he's not going to be able to kill his future self, for example, a moment of Joe's life post-retirement slowly showing a decline into drug addiction. The Brothers Bloom, perhaps my favorite of his career so far, was also similarly masterly handled. In Looper, despite the temptation to revel in its science fiction setting, it's first and foremost a character piece. When the one scene that stays with you most involves the older Joe reacting to the killing of a child and not a huge shootout with bullets and slow motion debris flying around. I think it's a fairly good sign that the film you have watched has actually worked on a contextual level. I don't I think Johnson himself said that. He was far more interested in the characters than the spectacle of this film and I certainly think that shows. I've seen on some of the advertising for the film that it was kind of this decade's the matrix and I think that's an incredibly misleading tag to put on the film. I was most reminded of Shane, and indeed Western iconography is rampant throughout it. From the blunderbuss guns the Loopers carry, and the posse that hunts Joe down, they all use revolvers and have dusters that kind of make them look like outlaws, which is even sort of more eye-catching. Given that kind of, we do see scenes of um, vast rolling fields, and then in the background, kind of huge futuristic cities. It's all great stuff, and it really helps. To endear the film to me even more. However, I don't think Looper is a masterpiece, or is it, neither is it some kind of modern classic. I was relieved that the film wasn't this huge science fiction epic and how kind of an intimate tale it was. However, I did find that it dragged a little bit. It was, at times, I, I, I sort of thought that um, we essentially find yourself rooting for the same person into different contexts and you sort of have very kind of conflicting emotions about them. And although the film mostly focuses on young Joe, I would have liked to have seen more of Bruce Willis, purely because, you know, I, I think it's good that Bruce Willis is doing films like this again. He he seemed to, in the 90s and I suppose the 80s as well, you know, he, he did he, he did do some pretty decent stuff and I think that kind of descended into um, pretty forgettable outings. And this seemed to be a kind of a, a very much a, a Bruce Willis film. I'm sure it's the 12 Monkeys comparison, but I'd have liked to have seen a lot more and the other thing as well the the kind of the telekinesis angle I thought was a little bit unnecessary and distracting to an extent Um, I know it was there to give the children threat because you know they might be able to do some kind of horrendous things just by thinking about it but I think there are other ways they could have, I think they could have dropped it basically and still have told a very similar story but that being said Looper is exactly the type of film I want in the multiplex it is not just the sum of its parts It has been made by someone who really cares about his craft, and it certainly comes across in the final product. Now, some will try and overplay the film's quality. I've read several hyperbolic declarations of this is the best science fiction film in the past whatever year. I would beg to differ. Looper is, and thankfully so, just a very good film. And if you're into intelligent science fiction, there is much here for you to enjoy. Where is your office? What do you do exactly? you know things i think this is what you do i think you acquire information and turn it into something awful What does it mean to uh, spend money a dollar a million don't trust standard models think outside the lines. you need to be inflamed don't you this is your element this is a protest against the future they want to hold off the future That's a scandal man dying's a scandal but we all do it He's out there, and he's armed. Makes me feel free in a way I've never known. Free to do what? The logical extension of business is harder. So rich and crisp. I smell sex all over you. Violence needs to self-contradiction the future becomes insistent something will happen soon maybe today there's still so much further I'm looking for more show me something I don't know destroy the past to make the future everything in our lives has brought us to this moment okay so next up was David Cronenberg's latest film Cosmopolis now Cronenberg's last week's v- Films *A History of Violence, Eastern Promises and The Method have all been box office hits, and perhaps it's because of Viggo Mortensen being in them, but I certainly don't think in any way he is a director who has sold out. I still think his films are incredibly unique and personal, and definitely you could say that they are most certainly the work of the director. Now, his latest offering, Cosmopolis, starring Robert Pattinson, may on first appearance be perhaps a rather worrying sign that he is somehow selling out purely because on the basis that he's making a film with Robert Pattinson however this is not someone who is about to be taking over the Twilight franchise indeed it was for me at least one of his most challenging films to date and let's just quickly talk about Robert Pattinson he is a good actor and he looks very cool in this film and I'm actually really looking forward to what he does next so stop bashing Twilight people because everyone who sits there and gets their guns out for that film and just remember that if you say you hate Twilight and like the Star Wars prequels um, I think you need to do uh, take a long hard look in the mirror as to where your um, film sensibilities lie because yes we can all sort of mock Twilight and take the piss out of it as I do but it is only the female version of the Star Wars prequels so get over it they are both shit and Stop pretending that one is better than the other, they're not. So with that off my chest, let's actually talk a little bit more about Cosmopolis now. In the film, Patterson plays Eric Packer, a billionaire trader who lives most of his life in a sealed limo, cut off from the outside world. All manner of chaos is breaking out around him. Someone is trying to kill him, the president is his town, and anarchists are going absolutely crazy. He is also losing a crap ton of money and just wants to get his hair cut across town, Oh, and also, he is trying to bring about a financial apocalypse by buying up vast quantities of Chinese currency. Coming in and out of the limo are business associates, his antique dealer and head of his securities who are having to fend off a mob. Oh, and a rap artist. He even has time for a prostrate trek from his doctor, whilst also trying to seduce one of his colleagues. It all leads up to a long chat with Paul Giamatti wearing a towel in a bizarre-looking apartment and Packer shooting himself in the hand. Okay, so this is not probably the most easiest film to really kind of get a handle on, but what the hell is actually going on? Well, the best way to describe this film is for those who have seen Charles Ferguson's Inside Job, in which we kind of see how isolated from the world the mega-rich had become, even going so far as to have private elevators installed so they don't have to mingle with normal people and generally living a life of such extreme luxury that they had become completely cut off from the real world and how it worked. Now, based on the 2003 novel of the same name by Don DeLillo, Cronenberg, by all accounts, has kept much of the novel in place, including the dialogue, yet the film, despite being based on a novel almost ten years old, is very much part of the current zeitgeist. Packer is literally in a different world, be it in the limo or outside. Around him are screens with numbers, we cannot translate them, they seem to make absolutely no sense to anyone but him. But they are, of course, the numbers of economics now. The bank's news to say, don't worry it's so complicated that you won't explain it but trust us we know what we're doing yes it's confusing but we know what it's all about so don't worry and of course we saw where that led us now it's exactly the same type of thing that goes on in this limousine Packer just sits there we're looking at the monitors which kind of they look like the kind of readouts you see in science fiction films that clearly have absolutely no sense to them and yet he has a complete kind of casual indifference to it all. He is desensitized as to what the numbers actually means. He's just really the only thing that kind of interests him is trying to cause about the financial collapse of China and the world markets. And it is inside this limousine that this environment has kind of molded him into the person that he is. When he is outside the car, most notably in a nightclub, he behaves in exactly the same way in the interior of the limo. Now, now inside the limo, Parker, Parker is actually trying to upset the world financial markets. It's not abundantly clear that this is what he was trying to do, but that kind of casual indifference and the kind of the ease by which he does it very much felt like the way. If you have seen Inside Job, you can kind of see how the people in charge were completely—I don't think oblivious is the right word—but they just seemed to be completely ignoring the fact that what they were doing was going to lead to an apocalypse. Now, I suppose it, one interpretation. Is that we could sort of say that the limo has molded Packer into being who he is. He's kind of—it's a metaphor really for how kind of detached and sealed off from the world he is. But I, I kind of think that it's the character himself. Um, he doesn't really need a kind of a metaphor because when we sort of see him out, especially in a nightclub, he kind of behaves in exactly the same way. It's just all meaningless to him and. In a way, if you've read the novels of Bret Easton Ellis, he very much felt like a character like kind of Patrick Bateman. You know, we meet someone at one stage. A um, a taxi pulls up next to the limo, and he just calmly gets out, sits in the taxi, and begins talking to this woman. And it's almost as if the dialogue's kind of in the third person. It transpires that this woman is actually his wife, and he has absolutely no idea about what she likes or what she wants, he just starts talking to her in this very kind of bizarre way and in one scene when the kind of the financial apocalypse is beginning to happen she sort of splits up with him and there's not an ounce of emotion from either of them, only the fact that she'll kind of stick by him and support him financially and I suppose again it's trying to make this kind of liken it back to the whole, to this notion that his entire life is just like one business transaction after another but Likewise, kind of the relationship he has with kind of other females in the film, he's either always he's always always sleeping with people or trying to um, seduce them. And there's a there's a brilliant bit moment where kind of Juliet Binoche plays his art dealer. We sort of introduce her, and she's just kind of riding around on top of him, and then he just kind of kind of casually gets off and starts kind of rolling around on the floor of the limo. And it, it's as if nothing they do has any kind of emotional value at all. And this is all sort of further kind of complemented by the very heavily stylized dialogue, it's actually quite hard to understand what Packer is talking about sometimes. It's almost as if it's like free association, yet even an abstraction that serves to make him seem all the more aloof, and to a certain extent even more intriguing. When he's talking to his finance chief, he is also having his prostrate examined and it should really be quite funny but instead his attempts at charming her take on an altogether more surreal and disturbing quality because he's actually kind of reacting to the fact that this guy's got his hand stuffed up his ass, and it was sort of coupled with this um, very sort of long-winded attempt at seducing this woman I was watching this scene kind of waiting for something to happen that I thought was going to kind of give the prostrate examination sort of meaning in context within the scene but it doesn't it was just sort of there to be extremely awkward yet Packer and the girl behave as if absolutely nothing is happening you know and it, it the, the sort of the absurdity of having a doctor come into a limousine and give someone a prostrate then sort of became as if you sort of believed as if this was just a normal part of his daily routine and I can only recall a um, story I heard about a hedge fund manager who he would insist on having um, sandwiches bought to him from um, a local bakery but the the sandwiches had to be uh, sorry, the bread news in the sandwiches had to be exactly three days old so this bakery had to essentially have an entire loaf of bread that they could only keep for three days and then bin and apparently he would go absolutely apoplectic if his bread wasn't exactly three days old and I'm sure for the people who are working around him this just became the normal but in reality it just seems so bizarre and kind of petty and stupid but I suppose when you get to that state that you're used to getting whatever you want stuff like that does seem like the normal but I think one of the other things that kind of grabbed me about Cosmopolis is that I think this is very much uh, reflective of the times in that Packer is obviously in his 20s and he's this kind of billionaire and there's a kind of a juvenile streak to the way he behaves he doesn't kind of seem bothered by the by what is going on outside the window and the kind of the state of the world in general and and I thought it was very much kind of reflective of those kind of the young billionaires that we have in our society you know people like Mark Zuckerberg you know there's always something a little bit odd about these people I find because I sort of think how can they be so kind of business and tech savvy at such a young age and you know they're kind of like I suppose the very modern billionaires you know the internet in a way has democratized the way in which we can attain wealth we can do it by a very early young age now and i think perhaps of kind of like the older generation kind of see that as not being such a great thing you know it's a the the idea that you kind of work your entire life and then you know when you retire in your late 60s or your early 70s or whatever you kind of look back at what you've accomplished with this you know massive house and um, trust funds everywhere but now you know overnight you can kind of come up with an idea and be an internet genius and be incredibly rich two years later or you know even quicker and that it's the the new world order of finance as it were and the person who is out to kill Packer is actually a former employee who's obviously a lot older and very bitter about what has actually happened to him now when we kind of eventually when the film eventually gets to the kind of the showdown between the Paul geometric character and Packer we see that The apartment that this guy lives in is full of kind of old technology, like huge monitors and keyboards are littered around everywhere. And I think that's kind of representative of this older generation who, looking down at the young as being this kind of frivolous sort of wasters who don't deserve what they have actually attained, now, perhaps this kind of apocalypse that Pacquiao seeks is kind of being done on a whim. He kind of casually plays around with the concept that, with one of his underlings, that he would like to change the world currency to rats, and outside the limo, anarchists run around with giant rats, and, it, you know, is it a kind of a sign of things to come, or is it a manifestation of these ideas? Who really knows, and I think that's kind of testament to how trippy this film gets at sometimes. I think kind of to read too much into it may lead down the rabbit hole of overinterpretation. when viewed without the expectation of traditional narrative codes. You may find yourself mesmerized by what is happening, or indeed you might find the film quite frustrating. Somehow Cronenberg kind of manages all to keep it all together. I think it's very much a film that plays within its own interior logic and his direction in the limo. May go unnoticed, but I actually thought it was pretty incredible the work that he does because characters feel meters apart when in reality they are not, and as if you know, the spatial limitations of the limousine of the limousine are simply not there. His characters move around it, they roll around on the floor, and just think there was a limited space. It will suddenly make a cut that makes you acutely aware of the claustrophobia of the environment they're in. I think it's jarring yet perfectly in keeping with the film's idiosyncratic tone. Regular DOP Peter Krzyznicki and Cronenberg opt for a dark, oppressive look to the film. It mostly takes place at night, and no, Robert Patterson does not look like a vampire ever during the course of the film. What it did for me, however, it elicited feelings of films like Taxi Driver, even narratively a kind of road movie like structure with Packer moving from one place he is alienated to for, to another. Much of the framing of the film is in medium shot with great patches of the frame in darkness. It works well in visually conveying the ambiguity of the film. You never really feel like you are seeing the whole picture or get a better idea of the world in which Packer's in. Also I think it has a great cast and with likes of Juliette Binoche, Samantha Morton, and uh, Matthew Amaluric are all noticeable in their own right but they're not kind of the big stars where they kind of draw over attention to themselves and it's one of those films where really this is essentially a series of vignettes and I think you need decent actors in there to make them stand out otherwise I think they would kind of perhaps become a little bit boring. One of the characters I did really enjoy is Kevin Durand who plays his kind of bodyguard and head of security. You might know him as one of the he's one of the kind of like the mercenaries who comes into loss and I think it's about season four or five um a really kind of creepy character actor I do enjoy his work um quite a lot and I particularly liked his turn as this kind of um really kind of ultra-professional bodyguard because you see him outside the, the limousine sometimes just kind of fighting off the crowd and he sort of just appears at the window. Okay, so on the whole, I did enjoy Cosmopolis, but I certainly didn't love it. It has a glacial pace to it, and at times the rambling exchanges left me wanting something a little bit more digestible. In a sense, I wanted to be a little more clearer in its intentions. As a metaphor it works, as a pastiche, yes, to an extent, but something more profound, something more resonant, I don't really think it does. It could even be said it's a very superficial film, one that is more concerned with its own style and reveling rele- in the fact that it's not playing by the normal rules. Whatever you make of it, I consider it to be a lesser entry in Cronenberg's canon. Not a stinker, far from it, but one that I would have to recommend with a caveat that after about 40 minutes you might be mistaken for thinking you've been watching the film for about three hours. However, if you fancy something a little bit different, something perhaps challenging, perhaps not challenging, um go and check it out and I'm sure for Cronenberg fans there will be a lot to enjoy about it. You Jake Sully? I'd like to talk to you about a fresh start on a new world. You'd be making a difference. I became a marine for the hardship. I told myself I can pass any test a man can pass. All I ever wanted was a single thing worth fighting for. Ladies and gentlemen, you are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora. You should see your faces. We have an indigenous population called the Navi. They are very hard to kill. This is why we're here. Because this little gray rock sells for 20 million a kilo. Their village happens to be resting on the richest deposit, and they need to relocate. Those savages are threatening our whole operation. We're on the brink of war, and you're supposed to be finding a diplomatic solution. The concept is to drive these remotely controlled bodies called avatars. They're grown from human DNA mixed with DNA of the natives. okay so earlier this year I decided it was time to upgrade the television in my living room, now we used to have a 42 inch Philips amber Light plasma down there and at the time a few years ago when we bought it it was of course the kind of the height of um technological achievement and I had a look at it one day and I just thought Do you know what it is absolutely huge it's weighed an absolute ton and I thought to myself it was only 1080i as well, and I sort of thought, you know, what, well, this TV needs to be replaced. I do have another um, Plasma in the lot in my kind of home cinema kind of den that I have up in my loft, which is a kind of a 50-inch Panasonic, which is where I do most of my uh, film watching. However, I decided it was time that the 1080i 42-inch, and it, it, the only the screen was 42-inch, the rest of it had this kind of like black border that made it, absolutely, it was like half the size of a lorry, basically. I thought, it's time for this to go. And I began to research to have a look at a new television, and I was doing some um, browsing on the internet, and I came across a What Hi-Fi website, and they had the review of the television of the year, which was a Panasonic 46-inch 3D plasma. And I sort of umdenied about it, and I looked at uh, various online stores, and it cost about. Thirteen hundred pounds, and I I sort of asked myself the question: You, do we really need a new television? Is this just being ridiculous? You know, there was nothing wrong with the the Philips; it played completely fine. You know, it it good picture for 1080i, and I suddenly got consumed by kind of doubt and guilt that it was just a kind of um, frivolous waste of money. So I sat there clicking away, and suddenly I went on a website and I saw the TV for thirteen hundred pounds. Less than 15 minutes later, I went back to the same website and the television had dropped to £699, which I saw as a sign that I should buy this television immediately, which is what I did. So it arrives. I got on Amazon, ordered a couple of pairs of 3D glasses. And the TV, I think we got it in May. And up until now, mid-October, I think I probably watched about half an hour of 3D content on it. I tried watching the French Open Tennis, um, which was unwatchable in 3D. It was just I, I couldn't see the ball. I tried watching some of the Olympics in 3D, and that I, having young girls coming flipping towards the screen doing gymnastics was just weird. And I just thought to myself, you know what? The picture, the 2D picture was great, but I didn't really see anything in um, 3D that kind of really kind of blew my mind. I did watch a little portion of Werner Herzog's films, *Cave of Forgotten of Dreams*, and that did look quite good, but I'd seen the film quite recently so I didn't I couldn't maybe really bother kind of watching it again. However, all this has changed in the past couple of weeks. Firstly, it was the arrival of the Prometheus 3D Blu-ray. Now, I'm just going to have to kind of get on my rant box here a second. Right. If you didn't like Prometheus when you saw it, stop fucking talking about it because all I've heard since the Prometheus came out is now, there's people who do like it, who just sort of say, oh, yeah, I liked it, but the, the loudest voices are those who didn't like it, who seem to be constantly going on and on and on and on about what they didn't like about the film. Do you know what? Just shut up. No one cares. Go and watch something else. If you you know, Just leave Prometheus for the people that liked it. For the record, and we will get to it in the Ridley Scott retrospective, but, you know, I, I kind of enjoyed Prometheus, but it being a Ridley Scott film, I felt compelled to own the Blu-ray and I put the 3D Blu-ray in and my jaw hit the floor. It is incredible in 3D. Now, I saw it at the cinema in 3D and I would contest that, although obviously the scale wasn't as big as seeing it in the cinema, on my television, on 46-inch plasma, I've never seen such clarity to an image in all my life. It, It just blew my mind as to what this television was capable of. And this past Monday we had the third home video release of Avatar. Now of course we had the um, the release that came out about five months after the film which was just the 2D version with no features, then we had the special edition with some extended um, cuts. I'm not a huge fan of James Cameron extended editions, so I didn't pick up the, that release. Um, I must be the only person who I know who thinks that the the actual cut of The Abyss is better than the director's cut. Um, you know, feel free to uh, voice your opinions on that one. But the Avatar 3D, I thought, you know what, it's been, I've, I've seen the film twice, and I thought, I was so taken with Prometheus on 3D that I thought, and Blu-ray.com gave um, this new 3D re-release uh, five stars and said it was absolutely incredible. So I thought, you know, i will pick it up, sat down to watch it, and I thought, let's kind of go back to Avatar with fresh eyes, because... It's a film that it was the first trip to the cinema that I'd had where I'd I'd seen a 3D film and I remember when it began and I saw that kind of the opening sequence and I I sort of thought wow that's quite you know impressive and then I I sort of realised that we weren't talking about depth of image I'm sorry we weren't talking about kind of like you know this kind of pokey in the eye kind of 3D it was all about the kind of the depth and I sort of began to watch it and I thought yeah that's really impressive And then after about 15 minutes, this kind of the story kind of kicked in and, you know, sort of seeing where the film was going. And I kind of I didn't hate Avatar. I didn't I'm not one of these who sort of went out of my way to sort of say I I disliked it. But my, my kind of problem was with it. I knew pretty much from the off where the film was going. And it kind of came back to this rather stupid preconceptions that I had for it. I wanted Avatar to be kind of a kind of a really deep, serious science fiction film, a kind of a hard science fiction film, I suppose would be the word I'm looking for, and that that was a ridiculous thing to expect from a James Cameron film. He simply does not make that type of film, and I don't know why I thought that that Avatar would be the case. Of course, it was going to be a big budget, not very subtle. Action film, and I, you know, I do, in, I really enjoy James Cameron's films. You, know, I stand up for Titanic. I still think that's, I, 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 I an almost perfect Hollywood action film. All right, the first half when there's more talking than the second half isn't, you know, um, does sort of um, roll the eyes a little bit. But yeah, you, know, you can't beat that that last hour and a half of Titanic when that ship is ta- is sinking. It's masterful filmmaking. It's masterful action filmmaking, at least and yeah the aforementioned kind of the abyss still a great under underrated science fiction film and when i walked out of avatar i was like yeah you know it, i enjoyed it i it, it was a it was a it was one of those nights at the cinema when me and my missus made a bit of a night of it you know we saw an imax and we went out for dinner first and it sort of had a, i suppose it, it was a felt like a genuine event at the cinema and it came out obviously a few months later on blu-ray and it was just after i bought my 50 inch plasma in the loft and i sort of I wanted it to be my demo disc, watched it again and the thing I kind of came away with was the fact that I didn't necessarily think the 3D made much difference I sort of, in fact I think I probably enjoyed the film slightly more in that surrounding and I I sort of thought you know what, I don't think you really need 3D it doesn't really kind of add much and with this 3D Blu-ray re-release of Avatar I think I've kind of changed my mind on what I think about what you can do with 3D now obviously before I kind of talk too much about the blu-ray i just want to kind of obviously give a bit of a take a take a look at the film itself now i'm sure you've all seen it i don't need to remind you what it's about but i will anyway just a kind of a brief synopsis we have a kind of a paralyzed marine who gets sent to a far-off planet called Pandora where they have this avatar program which is when essentially you have people download into the bodies of these tall blue aliens called the Na'vi and on Pandora there is a mining operation to get a material out the ground called Unobtanium, which I, um, I will talk about Unobtanium in a little bit more, and of course the whole thing operations run by an evil corporation and who want to bump the Na'vi out of the way so they can destroy the kind of the nature and the habitats in which they live. And this whole Avatar program is to kind of seduce them into thinking that they're not there to kind of completely destroy their habitat. Of course, our marine played by Sam Worthington, Jake Sully, he. Originally goes in there to be a double agent, but he falls in love with one of the Na'vi and he ends up fighting for them to bump out the humans. Yada, yada, yada. We've all seen it. We all know what it's about. So I'll shut up talking about it. But one of the things that became abundantly clear to me on this third viewing of Avatar is that I can see why some people well see why some people seem to be so offended by the film. You know, it is extremely clumsy and clunky in its message there is obviously a very you know, i say serious but there's obviously a very clear environmental message being made here which is the fact that you know destroying our environment in the name of commerce is a very bad thing now unobtainium is probably indicative of what is wrong with the script what a ridiculous name for a mineral, unobtainium, you know, if Dame, you know, thank God James Cameron doesn't actually get to name minerals in the real world, you know, what would he call diamonds, you know, rare find obtainium or something, you know, it's just, it's so clunky and it is indicative really of what goes wrong because every time a human speaks in Avatar, it is so painful to listen to and I remember when I saw it at the cinema, I posted on a forum and I was like, well, you know, the the script is pretty bad and someone kind of angrily came on and was like well what you know what in particular i was like well the whole thing you know there's so many references to the contemporary world you know shock and awe you know fight terror with terror and all this and it you know it it is pretty eye-rolling but then again you know, you have to go back to this thing and i'm, I'm guilty of it myself you know james cameron has never been one to write kind of tolstoy in his screenplays he writes incredibly effective um screenplays that tells You know, tell the story he wants, but I don't think he's really interested in writing sort of Oscar worthy material. You know, I suppose Oscar worthy is the wrong word, but kind of award winning screenplays. That just isn't his game. You know, he's here to tell a story in a world which is incredible, and certainly Pandora as a creation is absolutely jaw dropping. It does genuinely feel like a real. Environment now, and I, I was expecting when I went back to go and watch this three D version, I thought, well, it will look older now, you know, it you know, it it, it, have, it wouldn't have aged that well, and it still holds up. It you know the, the interaction between the real characters and the CGI environment is seamless. I think it's and every time James Cameron makes a film, it's he he pushes the boundaries of what we can accomplish with cinema, and I, I think you know Avatar in that respect is a completely and utterly resounding success when you can look into an image and it's like your television is a portal into another world you have to salute the person behind that the clarity alone and the fact that you know you, you can see sort of the the layers as well going on especially when there's kind of like people looking at computer screens and then you look out the windows of offices and you can see things going on in the far background that you know that add such a realistic layer to what is going on I completely got, whilst I was watching it, why Avatar needs to be seen in 3D. In 2D, I think it's just a kind of an impressive yet slightly sort of familiar dumb story. In 3D, I think it actually kind of, you're able to sort of get over the fact that you're watching something which is really pretty um, elementary in the story it's telling. and. This is the thing, I mean, the, the, you know, seeing it again, the politics and the sort of the, the environmental message of Avatar, I, I sort of sat there with my eyes rolling because, you know, the whole thing is that the um, kind of Sully and uh, the, the Doctor played by Sigourney Weaver, Grace, I think her name is, you know, she's so respectful of the Na'vi and she's so, you know, um, wants to kind of integrate that the first thing she does is build schools and teaches them English. And that's such a sort of a naive, ridiculous way of treating native indigenous people it's like those absolutely I, I can't stand uh missionaries who go out and sort of you know go to the depths of amazon of the amazon stuff to um you know teach people about civilization and then you know you these kind of communities slowly sort of descend because really the modern world and all its kind of vices catch up to them now i've read so many people who get on their high horse that they don't like this film the way it preaches to them and things like that and you know well, you, you can watch, you, you can take that away from it, you know, it is quite preachy and it is sort of, you know, it obviously has a very clear environmental message to it, but you, you don't, you, know, you can ignore it, at, you, know, you can ignore it at will, no one's forcing you to kind of, um, the, the film isn't forcing you to go out there and sort of try and make the world a better place, it's just one of the kind of the themes of the film. And it's like when sort of Bono tells us that there's people starving in Africa, well, you know, no fucking shit, Bono, I know that already, you know. But it still doesn't mean that you know I can't enjoy some of U2's music. I, I think people need to sort of get over the fact that um, James Cameron is, you know, apparently telling them what to think. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's sort of um, that forceful in what it's trying to do. There's no sort of kind of advert at the end to go you know for save the world or anything like that, and once I've been able to sort of get over the sort of the prejudices that I had against Avatar, I really did enjoy seeing it again. Now I think one of the things I've come away um, from Avatar and watched again is that I think James Cameron is one of the all-time great Hollywood directors. Um, again, ignoring the kind of the, the limitations of his screenplay, the story that he tells is incredibly basic. Um, it's, in, it's, it's not really original. However, he has crafted a film which is up there, I think, with one of the all-time greatest spectacle pieces of cinema ever made. And now, it amazed me because in the sight and sound poll, uh, Michael Mann listed Avatar as one of his top ten favourite films of all time. And I was a little bit surprised by that. But the, the sort of the more I thought about it, you know, think about a film like Avatar and The Wizard of Oz. Um... They're both, I think, trying to do the same thing, which is kind of to you know, take you to another place and amaze you. And if you were to put in front of me Avatar or The Wizard of Oz, you know, which one would I be more interested in watching? I think I'd have to pick Avatar every time, to be honest with you. And people kind of get these um, rose-tinted spectacles on, you know, about films like The Wizard of Oz. But this is this is our our generation's version of The Wizard of Oz, and I think you know that film is generally considered a Hollywood classic, and. I'm going to sort of perhaps contradict myself a little bit here, because I I think Avatar is an above average film, but I also think it's a Hollywood classic. I think it is an example of what Hollywood does best, which is make big budget spectacle cinema. And yes, you know, it has a rather clunky environment. So yes, we know exactly where it's going to go, but it's still an amazing experience. And watching it on 3D Blu-ray, I think that is the best way to revisit avatar i think on 2d you are missing obviously you're missing an entire dimension to the picture but it is something that was conceived and shot in the 3d format and unfortunately i think it has obviously kind of made studios sending go well if, you know, if we just turn, convert everything into 3d it would make loads of money also and i i think lots of the kind of the, the issues that consumers have Um, people kind of wrongly attribute to Avatar he wanted to make a film that best showed off the format and I certainly think he's done that now this is where I guess the whole kind of 3D debate sort of comes alive because so many people um, are very critical of it and they say it's just a gimmick I think films like Prometheus and Avatar are not the type of films that I am instantly drawn to, I would say that they are kind of a, a good, I suppose an entertaining way of spending a couple of hours. However, if I'm going to watch films that are predictable and a bit dumb at times, I think having 3D in there to give them something else to kind of cling onto to and be interested in um, helps elevate them to the point where an average film like Avatar, and I contradict myself by saying it's a Hollywood great, but I think you kind of have to kind of take that in, in its context, but a film where I'm sort of, you know, Avatar 2, for example, I'm not jumping for joy at the thought of that film coming out. I'm not kind of sat there counting the hours, but I will go and watch it because I'll be genuinely interested to see what Cameron does with the 3D in the film. It will be a reason enough to go and see it. And when properly executed, 3D... I think, can help elevate more pedestrian material into something all the more interesting for people like me, who were, I don't know, were Avatar just a 2D film. I would be a lot more dismissive of it as I'm being now. But I think with 3D, you do get something that is unlike any other experience that you can get at the cinema. And it comes down to the fact that it needs to be properly used not just you know this up conversion stuff I think I think that's ridiculous because when you you see the difference in a film like Avatar and the Avengers um, 3D up conversion where a film has been conceived and planned with three dimensions in mind or you know there's a, there's a setting on my television where you press it and it can it can up convert 2D into 3D and you know it, it's actually quite an effective um, little tool but you know you do sort of you're acutely aware of the fact that when you're watching something that's been shot in two dimension, you, it's not meant to be up It's just there to be seen in 2D, and especially with Prometheus, that film is beautiful. And in 3D, I just thought it absolutely came alive, and I was able to kind of get over some of the uh, the more glaring shortcomings of the script. So. I think if you have a 3D TV and you haven't picked up Avatar yet, I can certainly recommend getting it, even if you're not a huge fan of the film, and again, it wouldn't make my top 100 Avatar, Uh, it it is what it is, and what it is, is a enjoyable, very unsubtle, science fiction action film that will literally turn your television into another world. And I have to salute Cameron really for having the foresight and vision to be able to make that come true. And I think that's just hope that we get more films like it that could, that use the medium to transport us to places that we've never been before. Okay, so that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Frames cast. Many thanks for listening. Um, If you want more Head over to the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com and you can go to the exclusive page and download some more episodes from the James Bond retrospective. You can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast and you can email me at 24framescast at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening and I'll be in contact soon. Bye.